0: Spectrum's next. Welcome to Spectrum. The Science and Technology Show on KALX Berkeley, a bi-weekly 30-minute program bringing you interviews featuring Bay Area scientists and technologists, as well as a calendar of local events and news.
1: Good afternoon. My name is Brad Swift, and I'm your host today. In today's interview, Rick Karneski talks with two physicists about the search for the Higgs boson and supersymmetry at CERN. Simone Pegon Grizo is a postdoctoral Chamberlain Fellow at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratories. Simone first appeared on Spectrum on September 23, 2011. You can listen to that show online at iTunes U. Soon after that appearance, Simone moved to Switzerland to work in close proximity with the ATLAS team at CERN on, among other things, the search for the Higgs boson. Rick is also joined today by Will Johnson, a physicist at Sandia National Laboratories in Livermore, California, during Will's PhD studies in physics at UC Davis, he worked on the collider detector at Fermi Lab in Illinois. Simone was visiting Berkeley recently and we invited him and Will for a follow up interview. During the interview, you will hear mention of GEV, which stands for giga electron volt. The electron volt is a unit of mass and energy. Head to Wikipedia for more on the electron volt. Now, the interview. Welcome back to Spectrum. Thank you. Thank Glad
2: you. to be back.
3: Let's get to it. A few months ago, it was widely reported in the media that scientists have discovered the Higgs. Can you walk us through exactly what people found and what bearing that has?
2: Yes. Just a reminder, we look for collisions of protons at a very high energy in this accelerator in Switzerland. And so, what we really look at is the products of these collisions. And we tried to reconstruct from what we see what happened at a very small scale. A few months ago, we had enough data, and our analysis of the data got enough refined to be able to distinguish from the existence of a exoplanet with that mass and the not existence. And so we actually found it. So that was a real success.
3: And the official mass is?
2: And the official mass is around 125 gV. And is that- GV is... The unit of measurement we use for the mass, so it's uh, roughly equivalent to the mass of a proton.
3: And what detector was this all?
2: So we have two main detectors, general purpose for these kind of searches, at the Large Hadron Collider. One is called ATLAS, which is the detector I'm working on, and the other is called the CMS. So both experiments had independent analysis on independent data samples, and they confirmed the existence of the Higgs boson. So we had two different experiments confirming the same result, which of course is always good.
3: Right. And now what's next?
2: Now next, our first goal is to measure more accurately the property of this new particle we found to really establish if it is fully the Higgs boson or if it has any deviation. There are several reasons why we may expect some deviations, but up to now I have to say everything looks like Higgs boson as predicted by the most simple theory.
3: What kind of deviations would it be?
2: So you can have several things if you want precision measurement that are ongoing to determine if this is really the particle we were expecting. But on top of that, there is a full other program looking for uh, other different products of these collisions which may show deviations from what we expect. We mentioned, I think, last time very briefly one theory which is really popular in the last decades which is called supersymmetry. This is probably the very next big thing that we are hunting for.
3: Stepping back a little bit, yeah. uh, in the months that interceded our first interview with you and the report of the Higgs, what, if any, big steps <laughs> in data analysis or the way that you guys were running experiments had to change?
2: Since we talked, one big step came from data, when we collisions, that almost doubled the amount of data we had since we talked and the discovery was announced. One collision happens, but you may have multiple collisions happening at the same time, and you need to disentangle them from what you see. A lot of work was put into actually disentangle these interactions, and this was really a key to be able to analyze efficiently. So enormous progress was made. Just to give you a rough ideas, in our detector, one part of it try to track charged particles transversing our detector, what you end up having are different points in different layers of your sub and you need to connect them to actually track the particle. So this seems easy if you have one or two particles, but then you end up having more than a thousand of particles and you need to disentangle who belongs to whom, right? So this, for example, is an area I've worked a little bit hard to to be able to make sure that we actually can efficiently distinguish different particles and not be confused by uh, connecting points which are actually belonging to different particles.
3: And are there still improvements being made to the data analysis? Of
2: Of course. Improvements are always ongoing. We work very hard on that. Right now, the larger collider is... Shutting down for a two years period, and on February it will actually shut down, and uh, work will be made on the accelerator itself for two years almost, and we expect to be back in taking data for physics analysis the first months of 2015. And the reason we do these works, not only as maintenance, but actually to improve one big thing is that we will be able to raise the energy of the collision of these protons, almost double it, a little bit less. So right now we are working at around 8,000 GV. After the shutdown and improvements, we will be able to collide protons around 13,000 GV. So why is that important? Increasing the energy, it actually also increases the probability of producing rare phenomena like the Higgs boson production or particle that predicted by the supersymmetry theory. In all this theory, the likelihood of producing such particles increased dramatically with energy. The higher energy we can probe, the higher our likelihood is to produce those particles. And this is also because they may be heavy, even heavier than the Higgs, and uh, not only rare, but also with a heavy mass. And so the more energy you have, the more likely it is that you can produce them.
3: And what kind of work will be done besides this upgrade? Mm-hmm. What are all the staff scientists going to do with their time for two years?
2: <laughs> we will keep us busy, I'm sure. The detectors themselves will be upgraded as well. The Atlas detector I'm working on has a big project of trying to replace one of its innermost parts. I mentioned these uh, detectors to detect charged particles. These are based on silicon and they suffer radiation damage. With all this collision happening we have a lot of radiation which can damage all the electronics and the sensor themselves. A new detector was made and will be inserted in addition to the existing ones in order to improve the detection of these charged particles. This is probably the biggest project which will be ongoing during shutdown for our experiment. There are also several other minor maintenance and other upgrades which are ongoing. And in the meantime, we revisit our analysis strategy, our software, in order to be ready when we come back to put in practice what we've learned analyzing the past two years' data and to be even more efficient.
0: So with these new detectors, it'll be detecting even closer to the points of collision.
2: That's correct. In fact, I mentioned things happen very close to where the protons collide. So when I mentioned that particles decay to other particles and so on, that usually happens in a small space, like way less
0: than half a millimeter. So it's important to note that you never actually see the particles you produce. You only see the decay products from them. That's correct. Exactly. Having... A detector which is
2: close to where the protons collide will allow us to differentiate
1: even better. You are listening to Spectrum on KALX Berkeley. Our guests today are Simone Pagan-Rizzo and Will Johnson. Both are physicists. In the next segment, they discuss supersymmetry.
0: It may not be obvious, but so actually one of the main goals for high energy particle physics is actually to find a single equation. And from this one equation, we can derive everything we could possibly need to know about how particles interact, what particles exist, how everything works. So the goal is one grand equation, a grand unified theory. Right now, we have a great equation called the standard model that takes care of all forces. Everything we know about how physical objects interact and how they exist can be described by this one equation with the exception of gravity. We can't combine that in with this one equation. And also there's some parts to the equation that we think could be a little bit more elegant. And we want to combine it with gravity and also possibly take care of some of these ambiguities. Going to supersymmetry allows us to do that. So one of the big questions is, we haven't seen supersymmetry yet. I know when the LHC turned on, everybody was hoping that it would just be very obvious and we would just see supersymmetry. But that hasn't been the case so far. Has there been any hints or signs that people are looking for that supersymmetry is most likely to be hiding?
2: We were hoping to see signs of this supersymmetry in couple of years of running of the Large Hadron Collider. The Large Hadron Collider started with an energy which was lower than what is designed, and only after this shutdown we will get to the energy which was designed for. So we really hope that this increasing energy which can shed more light on the natural supersymmetry and why we didn't see it so far. For sure, the data we analyzed so far
0: already poses a slight challenge to the theory itself. It might be good to explain why supersymmetry is such an attractive theory. People have been looking for it for 30 years now. We've seen no hints of it, yet still very convinced.
2: Yes, supersymmetry can explain a lot of the unexplained feature that we see up to now. Supersymmetry will give us, from the theoretical point of view, the door to unify also gravity with the other forces. A lot of people think that this is the right way to go to be able to actually describe gravity together with the other forces in a single theory. People have already heard about string theories and so on. They all implicitly assume that supersymmetry exists in some form of it. So it's very important for us to find any sign of it or this theory will lack a fundamental part of it.
0: And so actually what happens... If it turns out, we don't see supersymmetry. The Higgs boson looks exactly like the standard model predicts, and we see no other hints of supersymmetry.
2: Well, certainly this is something that we need to consider, right? There are open questions that we hope supersymmetry can answer. If supersymmetry is not found, still we need to answer those questions. So we need to keep looking. There are several other theories which may predict and explain the same scenarios just are not the more simple ones. So it just means that probably the most simple solution we found was not the correct one. So we still need to look for other sign of it, and we do it already in parallel. So we consider the possibility that supersymmetry is not the right answer. It's just the one that we think is most likely. We will keep looking, even if we had no sign of it. So we really expect to, to find some sign of something maybe supersymmetry, maybe something else but we really hope that with the next data we will find a sign of something else beyond what we know if that doesn't happen still we need to find a mechanism to explain what we see which is different from what we have thought so far and that for sure will uh, require a big synergy between the theoretical part and the experimental one trying to work together towards a new different solutions.
0: There are people actively working on data from the LHC looking for other theories. Technicolor is one of the other big ones. But the detectors aren't designed specifically to look at supersymmetry. They're designed to try to catch as wide of possibilities as possible.
2: Yeah, this is actually a very good point. We perform some general searches which do not depend on a specific models, but just look for consistency between the given theory that we have the standard model and what we see. So any hint of it can be used at least as a guidance in which theory can predict this kind of phenomena. So we keep looking also for unexpected as much as possible.
1: This is KALX Berkeley. The show is Spectrum. Our guests are Simone Pegon grisot Will Johnson. In the next segment, they detailed useful byproducts of high-energy particle physics.
0: Can you think of any good examples of the technology developed for high-energy physics, or maybe the analysis techniques designed for high-energy physics and invented for it have affected people in common everyday life.
2: This research is really targeted in fundamental research and understanding how nature works. So the effects of it are usually a very long term. So it's very hard to predict what will happen. However, the means that we use to actually perform these searches, they may have a more direct impact. If we go back a bit in the history, all the nuclear science that was used to start this particle physics in general decades ago is for example used to treat cancer here in california is for example very advanced in what is called hadron therapy so try to treat cancer with protons and they have several advantages with respect to the common radiotherapy particularly for innermost tumors in this way you can reach and try to kill the tumor burn the cells of the tumor without having to burn whatever is in the middle. All these kinds of detectors, with a lot of R&D, of course, on top of them, but were taken from what was developed for nuclear physics in the past. This is a very good example of how technology that we may use for our scope can actually be reinvented and adapted for other scopes. Another very big challenge that we face every day is that the amount of data we collect and the computing power we need to analyze it is huge. In order to cope with this, We had, since several years, uh, projects for distributed computing in order to be able uh, to analyze data everywhere using computing that are located everywhere in the world, sharing computing resources, sharing disks. This was a necessary step for us in order to be able to carry on and having physics results. However, that can have also an impact to everyday life. What we see now is uh, all the cloud computing increasing faster and faster in our everyday life. This is a slightly different version of this distributed computing that we've been developed and worked so far.
0: The web as we know it today evolved from what was created at CERN. So if you actually see some of the photos of the very first web browsers, they actually have design specifications and pictures of the ATLAS detector at CERN. It was created for the scientists to communicate. But then it was such a useful technology, it fell out to the rest of the population. So an interesting story is that even today, that when you browse
2: and you don't find a page, you get this error 404. And this was actually the room at CERN where the first web server was hosted. A lot of the physics analysis that we do is really, from the statistical point of view, to disentangle this huge amount of data that we collect. And Trying to find rare phenomena is usually trying to find a handful of events, of collisions, which have the characteristics you want among the billions that happened. So these techniques are very similar and uh, in common to other challenges where you have a huge amount of data and you need to find uh, specific ones. On a slightly different level, but is what Google needs to find when you put some keywords and you need to find what are the relevant pages for you. And there are few. So even in this case, what you need to do is basically try to find the most appropriate few pages among the billions that exist, which match what you're looking for. In many senses, this is not very different from what we try to do. And in fact, some of the technologies Mm -hmm. with very big differences are actually in common.
3: Well, one question, of course, is with the shutdown of Fermilab, do you see the need for more accelerators besides CERN?
2: I strongly think these accelerators are big and they take a lot of resources of our community, not only in terms of the money you need to build them, but also as intellectual power of our community in run them and analyze data. But having a new accelerator right now is not worth the investment in both thermal mining intellectual power that we need to put on it. So the Large Hadron Collider will run at least up to the end of the decade and probably up to the end of the next decade. And this will be enough to give us data to answer most of the questions we actually build it for. Of course, people are already thinking of what's next. They're thinking of new accelerators. They're thinking what is the best choice how to build it, if we have the technology, if we need to develop something that we are missing. And
0: people are actively working already on this. And the LHC is a giant machine. It's hundreds of feet underground and miles and miles across. So building a bigger tunnel is a very, very expensive proposition.
2: Yes. And And there's
0: just fundamental limitations on how strong magnets can be. So... A lot of people are investing a lot of effort into finding other ways of accelerating particles or studying phenomenon that doesn't necessarily need accelerators. And is there anything particularly promising? There's the plasma wave accelerator. Um, there's cosmic sources. So some of the highest energy collisions we get are actually from particles from outer space. And a lot of people are using the atmosphere itself as a detector. So you can look at the interactions in the atmosphere and the decay particles from those interactions to see what happened. There's also a lot of work going into just looking to see if you can study these processes with a lower energy. So maybe you won't be able to see what particle you're looking for, but you'll be able to see some very slight effects on other particles or another process, some very, very slight effects, which if you're very careful and you study it it might tell you information about these much heavier particles than you can produce. So there's, there's a lot of ways of finding supersymmetry. Yes. Or other further Definitely. beyond the standard model.
2: Yeah, these are complementary ways in many senses. As you mentioned, there is a lot of work ongoing, and it's very promising. So we really look forward to this.
3: Simone and Will, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Rick.
0: Yes, thank you, Rick. Cool.
3: <coughs>
1: Spectrum is archived on iTunes University. To find the archive, do a search in your favorite browser for iTunes-U space Calex space Spectrum. We'd like to mention a few of the science and technology events happening locally over the next two weeks. Rick Karneski joins me for the calendar.
4: The theme for the spring open house at the Crucible is the science of art. The Crucible is located at twelve sixty Seventh Street near West Oakland Bart. Admission on Saturday, April sixth, is free from eleven a.m. until four p.m. The open house seeks to highlight the scientific principles inquiry, and exploration behind the industrial arts processes taught and practiced at the Crucible. Highlights include the science of fire, the gravity of mold making, mysteries of steel made visible, bicycle physics, surfing the solar flares with science at Cal, recycled glass processing, and more. There will be demonstrations, tuition discounts, food and bikes for sale. Visit thecrucible.org for more
1: info. In April of 2012, a small asteroid impacted close to home in California at Sutter's Mill, the site where gold was first discovered in 1848. Meteor astronomer Peter Jeniskins of the SETI Institute started a tally of finds and mobilized NASA Ames Research Center into leading the recovery effort from the air and the ground. Seventy-seven meteorites were found. He will summarize research results reported in a recent 70-author science article and also discuss a second meteorite fall that happened in Novato and Sonoma last October. The presentation is Monday, April 8th, at the Academy of Sciences Planetarium. Tickets for this 7.30 event can be purchased online at calacademy.org.
4: San Francisco's science museum, the Exploratorium, is reopening in their new location at Pier 15, on Wednesday, April 17th. To celebrate, they will offer free outdoor programming from 9 a.m. until 10 p.m. The new museum offers six galleries on human behavior, living systems, maker culture, observing the landscape, seeing and listening, as well as an outdoor space. More information at exploratorium.edu.
1: Also on April 17th, UC Berkeley is holding its monthly blood drive. You can make an appointment online, but walk-ins are also welcome. You are eligible to donate blood if you are in good health, weigh at least 110 pounds, and are 17 years old or older. You can also check out the eligibility guidelines online for an initial self-screening. If you are not eligible or you prefer not to donate blood, there are other ways to support campus blood drives through volunteering, encouraging others, and simply spreading the word. The blood drive will be on Wednesday, April 17th, in the Alumni House on the UC Berkeley campus. It will last from noon until 6 p.m. You can make an appointment or find more information at the website redcrossblood.org using the sponsor code UCB. We also like to bring you several news stories that we find interesting. Once again, Rick joins me for the news.
4: Henrietta Lacks died of cancer in 1951, but her immortal cell line, called HeLa cells and derived from her cervical cancer, is the oldest and most commonly used human cell line. The cells were used to test the polio vaccine and have been used in the research of over 70,000 scientific papers since. Lars Steinmetz and others in Heidelberg, Germany, published the genome of Gila in the journal G3 in March. However, the team has since removed the data from public databases because of privacy concerns expressed by family members and other scientists. Lax did not give her consent for the line to be used, and some are concerned that it may disclose genetic traits shared by her descendants. However, no law required that kind of consent in 1951 and even current regulation differs widely as to what consent would be required to sustain a modern cell line. Due to the extensive documentation of the cells, the privacy of the HeLa line may have already been broken. With literature already published, Harvard Medical School researchers have assembled a draft genome, and a team of University of Washington researchers have spoken about not only the HeLa genome, but also the more specific information about individual haplotypes at the American Society for Human Genetics Conference in San Francisco.
1: A recent UC Berkeley study on the lives of wild bees find that the insects thrive better within diversified farming systems. While you might consider the insects yellow nuisances, bees actually play a crucial role in the life cycle of cross-pollinated crops, which account for one-third of our caloric intake. The mysterious decline in both honeybee and wild bee populations in recent years has prompted many scientists to study the buzzing insects more closely. This study found that crop yield generally increased with wild bee population, but also linked the recent decline in bee populations to heavy pesticide or fertilizer use, typically in large-scale monoculture agriculture. A number of California beekeepers seem to agree. They recently sued the federal EPA for failing to ban two pesticides widely regarded as harmful to wild bees and honeybees. The two insecticides named in the lawsuit, known as clothianidin and thymethoxam, have already been found to pose an unacceptably high risk to honeybees by the European Food Safety Authority. The music heard during the show is by Lostana David from his album Folk and Acoustic, made available by a Creative Commons license, 3.0 attribution. Production and editing assistance by Renee Rao.
0: Thank you for listening to Spectrum. If you have comments about the show, please send them to us via email. Our email address is spectrum.com. KALX at yahoo.com. Join us in two weeks at this same time.